0: Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. I'd say I love Easter, and we are. We're just a couple Sundays out, like I had mentioned, from, from Easter. And I love today we start a series of messages entitled God Can. God Can. And I love this series of messages because it reminds us that when you and I get to the place of I can't, in so many of the situations of life, we are reminded that God can. One of the most quoted, one of the the favorite sentiments and truth from all of Scripture is this. With God, all things are possible. And we love that. We, we cling to that truth. We live in a culture that seeks to do the impossible, don't we? The messaging is this, that you can do the impossible, right? Whatever you put your mind to doing, there is nothing impossible for you. And I thought about that messaging the other day as I was just sitting at the house and I was working on our, our sermon today and I looked, started looking around my house And I started thinking, there's nothing impossible for you. And and man, you put your mind to it. So I looked around the house and I just began to think, man, what are some impossible things around here that I would love to see become possible? Let me share a couple of those with you, ready? Uh, Number one, I would love to see this impossibility for toys that lay all over the floor of our house to automatically march themselves up in the toy box every night. Love to see the impossible. I would love to see this, my dishes get up out of the sink and rinse themselves off and put themselves in a dishwasher and turn themselves all right and, and, and then put themselves back up in the cupboard. I, that, it's impossible, but in a culture, everything's fine. I wanna see that done. Amen, amen. Here, here's some other things I see. I would love for this to take place. I would love for all of my meals to cook themselves. Every supper time. This thing magically comes to life, Beauty and the Beast style, goes up on the stove, and it, I am their guest for that day. Hadn't happened yet. I, I thought of this how cool would it be if the laundry would go from the floor and float in the air, drop itself in the washing machine, and then take itself out and go to the dryer, you know, and you just smell it so nice and beautiful, and then it folds itself. You know what part of laundry I hate the most? Folding. I actually enjoy putting in the washing thing and, and then I enjoy putting in the drying thing, but I hate folding. That's part of the impossible. Um, I, I love this. This is a picture of my lawnmower. I would love for this thing to be able to all by itself turn on. <laughs> hey, don't do that. Cut the grass. Here, here's, uh, you know, I've got, I got four kids. How cool would it be? If all of a sudden these things came to life and they found the stinky hind end of one of my children. <laughs> Took a wipe, went over there, handled business, then cinched yourself on there and never, never again will we have to. Hey, listen, we live in a culture that says there's nothing that is impossible as long as you put your mind to it. Yeah, there is, right? there are the things that I just laid before you. It's impossible as a culture. We boast that there's nothing that is impossible if we just put our mind to it, but scripture teaches us clearly that when it comes to humanity, there are some impossibilities. In fact, one specific impossible in our life. This morning we explore a passage that exposes the limited possibilities of humanity when it comes to our salvation and when it comes to the enemy that we face that is known as sin. So take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 19. And as you turn there, let me give you the context of this passage. Jesus is marching towards Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is ground zero for the salvation of the world through a cross and an empty grave. And Jesus, as he marches towards Jerusalem, while we celebrate this this very month in Easter, Jesus is doing what Jesus does best and what he loves most. And that is he's engaging in the lives of people. As we turn here to Matthew chapter 19, I wanna tell you, I am convinced that we live a life, we live in a community, we live in a world that is faced with many impossibilities, but the God we serve uses the impossible as a stage upon which he displays his glory and might all through the Bible, all through history, and in and through your life and my life. We serve a God who can, make the impossible possible. And hear me, the reign of scripture, the song of scripture, the melody of scripture, the point, the culmination of scripture is this idea that I can't, but God can. Take a look at Matthew chapter 19, and here's where we begin in verse 16. It says this, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life. Well, you know that Jesus, just before this question was posed to him, was ministering some kids. Some kids had rushed him, disciples tried to deflect him. Jesus said, no, bring him here. And he begins to teach the people about the kingdom of heaven, i.e. eternal life, i.e. what it is to be saved. And I can imagine that this man who approaches Jesus, overhearing that conversation, it triggers something in him. It stirs something up in him to go, wait a second, I've been asking this very same question. So he approaches Jesus. Now, note this question. What must I do to get eternal life? Note that this question is one that every culture has asked, that every religion seeks to answer, and that every person seeks to resolve in their own hearts and their own life. But hear me, this man, this young man, wasn't just looking for eternal life. But hear me, he was talking to eternal life himself, and he didn't know it. He was talking to Jesus, the term teacher. He called Jesus teacher. He didn't didn't call him by his spiritual understanding that he was God, he called him teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now note the description. As you study the three accounts of this across the gospels, you find that this along with the other accounts in the gospel would mark this man as a rich young ruler. In Mark chapter 10, it talks about Luke chapter 18, Matthew chapter 19, that he was referred to as a rich young ruler. Now young would place him in between the ages of 20 and 40. Praise God, 40 is still young. So grateful for that. The age range, amen, 20 to 40. Rich would speak to his societal position, his wealth, Ruler would indicate that he had a position of authority. And here's what we find in Luke's passage in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, verse 42, that potentially this guy's a religious leader. In fact, this, all these accounts set him up as a, a religious leader, a religious ruler. But listen to the question he asked, what must I do? As I'm gonna tell you, if you're asking this question of God, it is a flawed question at its very heart. What must I do? There is nothing there is nothing that any of us can do to save ourselves. Our salvation is based upon what Jesus has done, not what I can do. The gospel moves us from what must I do to get eternal life to what Jesus has done to secure our eternal life. It's a flawed question. But note the goal in mind for the rich young ruler. Eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, in verse 23, Jesus speaks of it as the kingdom. In verse 25, the disciples call, who who could be saved? They use the terminology of of being saved. What is eternal life? It is being saved into a, a kingdom with Jesus forever and forever. But as he asked this question, he wanted eternal life because here's the heart of the problem, you ready? There was something missing in his life. There's something missing in his life. I wonder how many of you kind of you sit here this morning and you know deep down something's missing in your life. can't put your finger on it, but something's missing. Hey, believer, do you remember the time when everything might have looked okay in your life or maybe everything was falling to pieces and there was just something missing in your life? That's where this rich young ruler finds himself in the passage to today. Look at verse number 17. It says this, why do you ask me? Jesus says, what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. Now Jesus is referencing God as the one who is good, but there's some problems here. Isn't Jesus God? Was Jesus confessing that he was maybe not good or bad or sinful or better yet that he was not God? Listen, absolutely not. The rich young ruler in this passage was not it bought into Jesus being God. That was very much clear by the title he gave Jesus and that was teacher. He wasn't bought into God in the flesh being Jesus yet. The Spirit of God had yet to illuminate his heart to this truth. But we find that Jesus says, what is good, only God is good. And here's what we find, that Jesus was getting him to consider his concept or his definition of good. Simply, Jesus was challenging his moral foundation, his understanding, his moral understanding of what was good. If good was found in the law, then the rich young ruler had no need for Jesus. If good was found in health and wealth and the religious nature of his life, he had no need for Jesus. But if goodness is derived from God and God is the standard bearer for good and God is the moral foundation for good, then hear me, church, there is no one good but God. There's no one good but God. Look at this passage in Romans chapter three, quoting an Old Testament passage. So from Old to New Testament, we're reminded that as it is written, means the Bible says, There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All are turned away and all together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Just in case you didn't get it the first time, that there's no one good but God. It's a reminder of Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through nine, when the rich young ruler would say, "Uh, what must I do? It's a reminder of this passage in Ephesians two, for it is by grace in which you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast, so that no one can boast. We, we live in a culture that inherently believes that everyone is good. Look at even our, our law. Look at even our justice system. You are what? You are innocent until proven guilty. But can I tell you something? while we need that as a culture and a society, when it comes to the economy and the culture of sin, this is not the case. When it comes to sin, we are guilty until made innocent by the only one who is good inherently in his nature, and that is God. But listen to how Jesus answers the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is it that you call good, Jesus asks? He says, if you want eternal life, Keep the commandments. Now watch what he says, which ones? Because not only are there the 10 that you and I are familiar with, there was the civil law that existed. There was the ceremonial law that existed. There were the laws of the Pharisees that were some 600 plus and counting laws that they put over top God's law to protect people from breaking God's law. And so when Jesus says keep the commandments, he's like, which ones? Which ones are the important ones? And watch what Jesus says. You shall not murder. That's number six out of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. That's number seven. You shall not steal. That's number eight. You shall not give false testimony. That's number nine. Now watch this. He reverts back to number five honor your father and mother. And then he goes to the Shema in Deuteronomy and reminds us of his challenge in Matthew 22, verse 37, when he said, love the Lord your God with pretty much everything, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus takes this incredible snapshot of the 10 commandments and here's what he does. Jesus engages the rich young ruler in the second half of the 10 commandments or the Decalogue. And here's why. Because when you look at the second half of the 10 commandments, you find that these are the ones that deal with our relationship with our neighbor. So when we love God with everything, it should be evident and seen in the way that we love other people. So what we find here is that these commandments are the most visible and are the easiest ones to see. Now, wait a second. You already read Ephesians chapter two. Is Jesus producing, is he promoting a works-based salvation that I have to do in order to be saved? Absolutely not. What Jesus is doing with this rich young ruler is he is displaying the man's religion. He's uncovering it, all the while exposing the lack of relationship this man had with God. He was missing something. What Jesus was doing was he was uncovering his religion and he was exposing the lack of relationship we had with God. Hey, by the way, how would you do on this list When Jesus said, follow the commandments, how are you holding up? But let's just do a little bit of a quiz. You ready? Let's do a test and see how we would do. Number one, murder. Hopefully, most of you are pretty good on that one. If not, I need you to check in with our security team and uh, you need to be frisked, okay? Uh, Now, listen, hopefully murder is not one that you've struggled with, but you know what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 21, that you and I can murder with our anger and with our words? Man, I've been there. I think I'm Thursday, right? You just go back, you go, man, I've been there. Let's think of what else Jesus throws out there. How about lying? Would you please raise your hand if you've never lied? (laughs) Okay, thank you. Uh, Because honestly, all of us are guilty, small, big, doesn't matter. All of us have misspoken the truth, have misused the truth, have not told the truth. Let's look at this, not only lying, but how about this idea of stealing? Have you ever stolen anything small like a paper clip from the office or big like a Ferrari? Listen, we've all taken something that doesn't belong to us, right? We've all done something, taken something that wasn't our, my, my, my youngest daughter, Sadie, she's two, she's, I love her, she has my heart. She is incredible at stealing food, from other people's plate. I'm gonna tell you something, if she was in this room right now, part of why we keep her away from the Lord's Supper is while your attention would be somewhere else, she would steal your wafer and your drink and she would drink and put it right back without you ever knowing. It's unbelievable, her giftedness, right? No, we're all there. We've done that at some point in our lives. Let's take this test and let's look at this. How about honoring your parents? Think of whoever your parents were, whether blood or adopted, no matter who that authority structure. Did you ever, were you ever disrespectful, ever roll your eyes? Ever do something they told you not to do? And we're all guilty. How about this? How about when it comes to our loving our neighbor? Have we ever wronged anybody? Guys, hear me. We have five commandments here we've just walked through, and I'm guilty as sin on all five of them. You are too. Man, we all are guilty. We all find ourselves at a place of guilty. Watch what the rich young ruler says when Jesus throws this out. This blows my mind. All of these I've kept. You know what I would have said? Shut up. Ain't no way, you're lying. You're breaking a third wing mention, you're lying. He goes, no, listen, all these I've kept, the young man says, what do I still lack? So you're telling me that he has kept all of these and there's still something missing, it doesn't make sense. So here's what I'm waiting for. Jesus to refute this, but he doesn't. Jesus does not refute any of his assertions and Jesus knows everything about him. But Jesus gets to the heart of his problem and that is the problem of the human heart. As though he had kept every law of God that he could, something was still missing in his life. You've been coming to church every Sunday that you can, but maybe something's still missing in your life. You give every chance, you get a chance to. Listen, there's something still missing in your life. He said, what do I still lack? Hey, church, let me remind you that a religion alone will leave you lacking something. That moral behavior alone will leave you empty. That religious leadership alone will leave you wanting. A great reputation alone will leave you deficient. Riches and wealth alone will leave you missing something, namely someone. There was an emptiness inside that he couldn't fill. There was something missing. He was searching for it and his heart longed to be satisfied. Watch how Jesus answers him. Jesus answered, if you wanna be perfect, now, let's not let that word throw you off. See, I know I have to be perfect to come to Jesus. Now, listen, that's not what he's meaning. At the very Greek root of this word, perfect, it means to be made whole. It means to be, be all the way mature in faith. He's saying, listen, if you wanna be whole, and you wanna be mature in your faith, as mature as you can be, watch what Jesus says sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Now watch this, then come follow me. Note the threefold invitation here, sell everything you have, give to the poor. Hey, by the way, always, someone always benefits when people give. And we're reminded of that in this passage. Look at the third part of this, and follow me. Hey church, hear me, this is a package deal. It doesn't mean eternal life comes by just selling everything you have or just giving to the poor. But eternal life is a package deal. We cannot skirt this to the side that we cannot do so without following Jesus. Now watch this. So is eternal life really selling everything we have? Are we going Bernie Sanders style socialism here in the New Testament? No, Jesus was showing him that his treasure was his riches. Even his religion. That was where his heart was. So, Jesus is doing. Jesus is ripping off the band aid and going, Here's where your heart lies. It lies in what you have, not the one who has you. That was also the reason why he was lacking. He was missing something, namely someone, and that someone was Jesus. Now, no church, I got to say this to you. This story is not a condemnation of wealth. Rather, it's an exposing of spiritual poverty. I did say, I love this in Matthew chapter six, verse 21. Check this out. You ready? Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hey church, can I ask you this question? Where's your treasure? What is your, your passion? Is Jesus your heart? Is he your treasure? I love this about the rich young ruler. I love what Jesus exposes here because it exposes it in me as well. That his treasure was his treasure. And he was still lacking. He was still lacking missing something in his life. Now, if you were to read this account of the rich young ruler in Luke, in Luke chapter 18, you would find a couple of stories that surround this so that we don't leave here with the idea, well, for me to be saved or for me to enter into God's kingdom or for me to have eternal life means I have to go be poor. Well, we find the same account in Luke chapter 18 and that is not so. We find that if you follow closely these episodes on the hill of this passage, you're gonna prove that Jesus makes different demands of different individuals. For instance, Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 was told to give away half of his income and what he had left he gave back to those he had wronged. The parable of the tenants encourages God's people not to give all their money away but to invest it wisely for their master's use. But here's what we find in each of these passages, Jesus commands Christians to use their possessions, not just some fixed percentage of them for kingdom priorities. And I want you to hear me, church. This was a task too tall for the rich young ruler. The heart of Jesus is challenged we find here in this passage, and that is this, follow me. It is the same invitation. It's the same challenge for you and I today to follow Jesus, but how? Well, look what Luke chapter nine, verse 23 says, what Jesus said. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Follow me, Jesus said. Follow me. He wasn't just calling the rich young ruler into humanitarian efforts, social justice, social activism, or charity. Hear me, give Everything you have away, give it to the poor and fail to follow Jesus' invitation to follow him and you have missed eternal life himself. And that is Jesus. Hey, you ready, church? The beginning of the impossible becoming possible is simple and that's following Jesus. It is the recognition as this rejoined ruler comes to that I can't, but that God can. I can't save myself. I need more. You know what? I I spoke this quote probably five weeks ago, but it says this. Many people want to see biblical awe, but those very same people are not willing to invest biblical devotion. And we see that here because look how this passage begins to finish up. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great Wealth. You know, in the NIV, and that's the version I have up here today, the word sad and the gray, this is a little bit of a, a watering down of that term. Like we look at that and go, oh, that's sad, right? The word here is grieving in the original grief. And it comes with it, that idea of the ugly cry, right? Like, you know, when you get really upset about something, you go from just like this cute cry to the ugly cry. You ever seen? it? Let me show you my kids uh, when we get a chance and I take away a cookie. It's unbelievable, it's scary. And this is the type of grieving that we find here. He walks away sad. He was rich, yet he was wrecked by poverty. He was the richest poor man in all of scripture. Why? Because he walked away from Jesus hey can I ask you this have you ever walked away from something that you really regret maybe a marriage or a job or a relationship or an incredible opportunity you look back and go man if I could only have if I could only have taken that chance we find that for the rich young world walking away led well, to great regret and great remorse Mark chapter 8 verse 36 I love this you ready what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What good is it for you have all the riches, all the relationships, all that your eye and your heart desires? What good is it to have all of it but to lose the very soul? You know, that it, what good is it to have it all and yet walk away from Jesus? And you lose it all, the Bible teaches us. Can I ask you this? What, what treasure in your life is it that has you walking away from Jesus today? Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's a relationship, or maybe a, an attitude, or bitterness, or an unforgiveness you want to hold on to. Or maybe you just you want to do things your own way. What has you walking away from Jesus? Today, look at verse twenty-three. As Jesus rounds us out. then Jesus said to his disciples, "Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven." I heard a man say this about this once. Yeah, but I'd like to try. You know, I like, just made me rich, and I'd like to try to see how hard it is. Now, listen. He says it's hard, not impossible, but it's hard for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier. And I love this. Hey, by the way, here's my camel. Uh, I bought this off of Amazon. It's easier, watch, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you were to study biblical history, some people try to say there was a gate called the eye of the needle. It was very, listen, that's, that's not really true what Jesus was talking about. He literally is talking about, and I bought these two. These are um, sewing needles or threading needles. And um, I got the ginormous ones, so these will show up on screen. Look at that. That's the eye of a needle. Did you know that the average eye of a needle is only .036 inches wide? Did you know that the average size of an adult camel is that they will grow to be six and a half feet tall and weigh up to 1,300 pounds? And you know what Jesus does here for us, which I absolutely love, and how he paints the picture, you ready? Is he says this, it's easier for this to go through this is for a rich man to enter heaven. Not impossible, but nearly impossible. Nearly impossible. I've got a small camel. I can't get this guy through here. I mean, I could do some bad things to it, right? I, I, could, I could make it happen. I could turn him into juice. but here's the deal, it's just not gonna happen. It's gonna be a painful process here. And this is what Jesus says. Now, watch what happens here. And I want you to sense the fear. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, let me go here first. That For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Hey, let me teach you something here. Not that money is the root of all kinds of evil, the love of it. Hey, I'm gonna tell you something, it doesn't have to be money in your life for you to love and to treasure it more than God, and it becomes the root of evil in your life. It can become a relationship. It can become any pursuit that finds itself to be the love of our life outside of Jesus and it becomes the root of all kinds of evil for our life. But catch what happens as this scene plays out. When the disciples heard Jesus say this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? I love this question. Can you sense the fear, the uncertainty, the uneasiness of Jesus's words? Here is a religious leader, a moral man, a religious man and the fact that his wealth was to the disciples and people around him a sign of God's blessing, if he doesn't have eternal life, if he isn't saved, if he's not in the kingdom, then guys, who makes it? This is a a question of fear. Who, Who makes it? If this guy doesn't get in, how can any of us get in? And watch how Jesus answers him. And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, All things are are possible. Watch this, I love this declaration. It's Jesus saying, you can't save yourself, but God can. It is a message to the rich man and the poor man, to the religious man and to the atheist, to the best of our community, to the worst of our community, from the law keeper to the law breaker, that you can't, I can't, but God can. Only God can take a person from death to life in Christ, Ephesians 2 teaches us. Only God can take the heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh as Ezekiel 36, 26 teaches us. Only God can take an enemy of his and make them into a son or a daughter because of Jesus in Colossians chapter one. Hear me, the rich young ruler was looking for good enough. In church, I tell you what, we don't need good enough. We need God enough to save us. And in light of that believer, tell me, what is impossible for God? What circumstance have you faced that is too impossible for God? What rebellion in your life is too impossible for God to defeat? What addiction lies outside of God's ability to save you from? What hurt is too deep for God to heal? What sin lies beyond the cross and the ability for God to forgive you? If God can save you, God can sustain you. And it reminds us of this truth. You ready? If our goodness cannot save us, then our badness cannot unsave us. We are always his. When I can't, God can, God has, and God will. Follow Jesus and let the impossible Set the stage upon which God displays his glory and might in your life.